Keep up that energy level. <laughs> Hello, you're listening to Always Carry a Body Bag. I'm your host, Dave Deluxe, sitting here again with Lauren Ryan. What do you mean again? Like, would you rather with somebody else? Yeah. No, it's fine. Wow. (laughs) No, it's cool. It's just what you say in podcasts. Like, we're doing another one. It's more about we're doing another podcast again. But why the emphasis on again? (laughs) Lauren's here. Again. again. Well, hello. (laughs) So what's up? What have we got? <laughs> we got some business to take care of. We don't. We don't have that much business to take care of, but we might as well shout out our our five patrons while we've got them. While we've only got five, we've got. We'll just do them all at once. We've got Bree and John. We've got J E. We've got Lindsay. We've got Lauren, and we've got Gracie. Hi, patrons! You rule. What's up? Thanks for being our five patrons. And please tell all your friends that. The bonus content is cool, and we're cool, and they should listen. Yes, and believe me, if it doesn't seem like it, being a patron is going to be worth it. Yeah, we've got a little surprise in the works. It's not uh, something that's listed on the tiers. It's just going to be a little treat for our first patrons, at least our first 50 patrons. But our, our golden five, I feel like... We should send them something extra special. But yeah, everybody who signs up after that, probably to like 50. I guess we'll make a real announcement when we have a real thing to announce. It's just yeah, a teaser. Yeah. You will not be forgotten, the original five. The golden five. The golden yeah. five, yeah. You guys are going to be like our, our merch testers and assuming people like us enough that we ever make merch. <laughs> then eventually they'll be like, yeah, I was one of the original five. Where you? Oh yeah, we can call them the original five. There's mm-hmm. really six of them. Because one is six. a couple, yeah. The Sinister Six. That's so much better, actually. Mm-hmm. The Sinister Six. All right. Well, you guys have a name. Congratulations. I I took that from Spider Man. Just letting you know. Fuck. <laughs> All right. Are we gonna get in <laughs> trouble? Call- it's like no. Spider Man's owned by Disney. And we can stuff. totally call them the Sinister Six. I want to. Okay. All right. Well, other than that, we don't really have any business. But I just want to encourage people to follow us on Twitter at ACA Body Bag on Instagram. Also. At ACA Body Bag. At ACA Body Bag. And you can send us an email and tell us how cool we are. Or if you have some cool, creepy story or your real life true crime story, you can send it to ACA Body Bag at gmail.com. And maybe we'll end up doing like a listener's tales if we get enough of those. Yeah, no, we'll totally read it. That would be hella fun to do. It would be super fun, but you guys have to send them to us first. You can't just like tell us over text messages either. You have to send us a real email. Send it in an email. Yeah. It'll just be easier. We can read it easier and we can talk about your excellent writing style. Yeah. Keep it as spooky as you want to. Don't hold hold back. Be dramatic. We love it. Where we last left off, Belle Gunness offed another one of her dudes and is looking for a new man around the farm. I think she has a couple people working on the farm right now, so. Yep, we'll get into it. Let's get down into the nitty-gritty. So that year, she started looking for men. She started putting out ads in Norwegian-language newspapers, advertising that she needed help with her farms and with her farm. And the first guy that comes is Olaf Lindbo, and he's this, like, 
little tender baby, real innocent vibes. I mean, from what I know of the limited information, he responds to the help wanted ad. And this is kind of exciting for me because my great grandfather was a Norwegian immigrant who moved to the Midwest and lived there at this time. And I had a lot of Norwegian family in the Midwest at this time. And so this newspaper that she advertised in, they were all members of the same church as she was. And this newspaper that she advertised in, even if they were never people that corresponded with her about it, they read the newspaper that she was advertising. That's really cool. I wonder if Indiana did have a lot of, it seems like they've had a lot of Norwegian people there then. The, the whole Midwest had a lot of Norwegian people, but they were mostly, I think, in Wisconsin and Illinois. Okay. that's where And that's where my family mostly was. Yeah. He responds to this ad, and she convinces him to take everything he owns and his life savings of $600 and go to Indiana to be hired by her. So he does. And shortly after he gets there, everybody is like, oh, they seem like more than boss and employee. Okay. Right. Okay. Like she's all carrying him around the farm, ba- baby <laughs> style and shit. Oh, that's so romantic! <laughs> I love it. They're all playing in the pig pen, but <laughs> booping noses with mud. <laughs> so it was. It became generally accepted that he was her fiance. That she hired him to work on the farm, but they were probably going to get married because they were clearly lovebirds. And he himself. He was forced to do that shit. Well, actually, he he was all for it. He once he came to the farm and started hooking up with Belle, he started writing letters home to his family. And when he wrote to his father, he's like, "This farm is in this great place, and I might be getting married soon." And then when he's talking to his friends, who he's like really close to, including Swan Nicholson, the neighbor, he's saying like, "Oh, I'm gonna marry her. I'm gonna be the master of the farm." Like he's he's into her she's not that into him because not long after he sent that letter to his father one of her neighbors whose name is chris christopherson i think when i was reading this we were like laying in bed together and i was like hey chris christopherson (laughs) but it's spelled with c's it's chris christopherson c-h-r not like chris christopherson the songwriter k-r anyway chris christopherson got word that she wanted his help as a hired hand and it was because Olaf had left in the middle of a big job and so everybody's like oh where the fuck did Olaf go he just disappeared and she's like oh yeah like he's going to the St. Louis World's Fair and he's gonna buy some land and he wants to go home to Norway to see the new king of Norway crowd and she's just like telling people all of these weird stories but everybody's like I thought you were gonna marry him and then his father is like, I haven't heard from my son in forever. So he sends a letter to Belle. And she's like, yeah, he went up west and took up a homestead someplace. But she says this wild shit. And people just are like, okay, I guess. I mean, I guess back in the day, it seemed reasonable because... People just disappeared. People, yeah, yeah, people just Disappeared, people heard of news. There's no hardline communications with other people. So if you got to go, you got to go now and you have a letter. And there's no Facebook facial recognition software. Yeah, see? Yeah, you get it. A couple months later, Henry Gerholt, Henry Gerholt, a couple months later, Henry Gerholt shows up. He's got a heavy trunk. Chris Christopherson helps him carry it up to the room. And everything seems like it's going fine. He's your new hired hand and... 
He writes a letter to his mom, and he says it's one of the nicest places in the neighborhood. I'm pl- I'm seeing my little handwritten notes. Um, he oh he says that's what it is. So he says it's one of the nicest places in the neighborhood. It's got a grove of green trees, and he says I'm being treated almost the same as one of the family. <laughs> oh, you'll soon find out how the family gets treated. My note is Belle Gunnis isn't especially nice to her family. Be careful, my guy. <laughs> <laughs> so she has two booze at the farm now. Well, one boo has mysteriously vanished, and now she has a new boo at the farm. And then Chris Christopherson goes over, and basically Chris Christopherson is Chris Christopherson is there all the time. And then he goes back over, and all of a sudden, dude is gone. And he's like, "What happened? How could he leave you? You just cut the oats." And she's like, "Yeah, he said he was sick and he couldn't do the work. He's gone. That's it." She never heard a word from him, and nobody really poked at it. Go check that pig pen that they were playing in. Yeah, bye, Henry. In the late summer of 1905, she's got an ad out in the paper, and here's the here's the ad. It, it was in Norwegian. This is translated into English. Wanted, a woman who owns a beautifully located and valuable farm in a first in first class condition, wants a good and reliable man as a partner in same. Some little cash is required and will be furnished first class security. So this was the ad that everybody was reading. They asked the postman who delivered mail to her what volume of mail she was getting. And he said, from one to four letters every morning and as many as ten, eight to ten letters a day. Okay, so people were writing. Mm-hmm. And I love to wonder, it's did any m- of my relatives write to her? They're not, none, they're, none of them are her victims. but Well, that's good. Yeah. They probably weren't small enough. Actually, all my Norwegian relatives were extremely small. That's where I get my small oh, stature from. My okay. grandfather, my great grandfather, who came from Norway, was like five four or something like that. And then his daughter, my grandma, was four eleven. And she said you needed some money to come and live at the farm and work there. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember when I said if you have to furnish money up front to make money, it's yeah. usually a scam? Yeah. This is like the worst scam. There's a bunch of guys that go missing at this time. George Barry, he left with $1,500 in cash, which is about $40,000 in today's money. There was Christian Hilkven of Dover, Wisconsin, and he sold his farm for $2,000 and split. And he had all of his mail forwarded to Laporte. You already have a farm. Why are you going to go to another one? A big, beautiful Norwegian lady who can throw 200-pound pigs. She's also writing letters to these guys. They're not just showing up based on just the classified. She's corresponding with them. She's developing relationships. She's catfishing them. She's sending nudes. She's not saying she's a different person, but she's presenting a different image of herself than what's real so that they come. She doesn't mention the kids, (laughs) I'll tell you that. Hmm? She doesn't mention the kids, I'll tell you that. It was Christian Hilkven of Dover, Wisconsin, who said he was going to go marry a rich widow. Emil Tell, a Swedish bachelor from Osage, Kansas, he came with $2,000. Ole Budsberg of Iola, Wisconsin. And so he sold his farm. And he had grown-up kids, and he sold his farm. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go marry this widow. What uh, was her like initial plan? Well, she's stacking all this money. Did she just... I know her sister said that she had a weird taste for money. Stacking that all these bodies. That's wanted a lot of money. I think like uh, like other killers that are the product killers, right? Yeah. That's that you want the results of having killed them. I think she discovered that she enjoyed the yeah, power yeah. of luring them and killing them. Probably such a rush. Don't get too excited. Calm <laughs> down, babe. 
So there's another guy, John Moe. He's a 40-year-old a bachelor. All these guys go missing. Check the crawl space. None of them stay very long. Like, everybody notices this. That she's getting all this mail. All these men keep coming to her farm. They're bringing trunks and trunks of luggage. And then shortly after they get there, they're disappearing. And some people are even noticing that their trunks are not disappearing. And nobody's checking in about any of this. Nobody's... And this is a two-time widow who, like, both of her husband's deaths warranted some level of investigation. Like, just... Okay, guys. All right. Next guy pulls up. Hey, lady, you got a lot of guy shit here in your house. <laughs> There's like 13 trunks in here. What's your body count? You got a thrift shop? <laughs> she pulls out a cleaver and she's like, what did you say? He's like, just wondering if you're a slut. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. These clothes fit me. I'll keep them. <laughs> These are great. These are great clothes. In the summer of 1906, she hires this Polish immigrant, William Bergiski, to dig a bunch of holes for her. <laughs> <laughs> this is like another one of those times where everybody knows everybody's business. Men are disappearing. She's hiring people to build bo- to dig holes to build bodies. She's hiring people to dig holes. Guess how big she wants the dimensions? Very specific. Six feet long, <laughs> three feet wide, and four feet deep. Can, can you just lay down and draw a line around <laughs> your body and dig a hole and... And that side, no particular reason, just... And Belle's like, what, they're rubbish pits. This is for garbage. I'm just digging garbage holes. Willie, for my trunks. Willie Picton vibes, digging garbage <laughs> holes. So she's like an amalgamation of all the sausage kings, really. <laughs> yeah. She really is. Like, like Stuart Alexander is like, I just do what the fuck ever I want. And, like, anybody who questions <laughs> me is, a, you know, an oppressor. Yeah, she's like Catherine Knight, Willie Picton... Stuart Alexander. She is the sausage queen. So the next week, Bergiski comes back to the farm and the holes are still empty. And he's like, I never saw what into them. And I never saw when they were filled. It's a farm. She could be planning. Yeah. Well, he's going to find out later what they were for. Oh, he sticks around after digging the holes. He's in town. And so later on, they dig up those holes. He's going to find out what went in Uh. them. So around this time in 1906, Belle's foster daughter Jenny is 16 and she's a babe. And boys like her. And Belle doesn't like that. And she's threatened by that. And around this time, she has Jenny's picture taken. And I'll post it on the Instagram. She's really cute. She's wearing a big hat. And she just looks all fresh-faced and cute. She has this like, little full lips and this sweet, innocent teenage girl face. Oh, no. Yeah, she's really cute. There's like hope behind that. All these stories, if somebody has hope, it's not usually a good thing. Yeah. Poor Jenny. She's like, you gotta kill these guys that like you, or if not, you're done. Well, they've gotta have money to be worth killing. One of the one of the boys that was into take Jenny on, take on the family business. Right. She could have just trained her up. Like she could have just partners in crime, but no. Oh, I thought you said chained her up. I was like, yeah, sorry. She could have just, she could have just trained her up. Yeah. One of Belle's suitors was this little boy, Emil. I'm little boy. He's probably, I don't know, 20. I don't know how old he was, but a little boy to me, I'm old. One of these little boys was Emil Greening, and they had developed like a pretty close relationship. She confided him in him a lot. He knew her pretty well. And, um, and at some point, she told him that her mom had decided to send her to college in California, and she was going to be going to the school in Los Angeles. Shortly before Christmas... 
this kid heard that a professor came to pick her up and take her to the school. He was working for Belle at the time, and she sent him on an errand, and when he came back, Jenny was gone. And he thought he was going to get a chance to say goodbye. He had promised her that he was going to say goodbye. And this is Belle's MO. She sends the witness on an errand, and then a person disappears, and she has some explanation for it. Emile Greening says, Mrs. Gunnis told me that Jenny had left that same morning, but no one saw her leave, and no one about the place ever saw the professor. Oh. This is the second daughter she's taken out. This is the first one that's for sure, and probably, possibly the second or third, because there was the the other, the two babies. There was the step baby, and then there was the adopted baby that was a daughter. She also had an adopted baby that was a boy that died. This child was also adopted. Yeah, well, they were all adopted. Yeah. But one was, like, through marriage. Uh, Another boy who was interested, who was pursuing Jenny, said that Jenny didn't seem happy about leaving, and that she had promised she had made him promise that he would come say goodbye to her but then she was gone in this weird time frame that was not in line with what she said it was going to be so he came to say goodbye to her and she was also already gone so years have passed since the baby's death these kids probably knew she was taking out these dudes but never thought that they would feel the wrath from their own mother it sounds like the kids may not have really known like that Maybe they knew about Peter Gunnis. Like maybe there was like a fight or something that they knew about. Like how Myrtle said, my mama killed my papa. But a little while later, it's coming up soon in the story. There's a little bit of evidence that the kids didn't know exactly what was happening. Yeah. They're kids. So their first thought isn't like, oh, mom's dismembering men in the basement. (laughs) Like they're like, oh, where'd that guy go? And she's like, oh, he split. And they're like, isn't that just like a guy? You know? Couldn't hack it on the farm, huh, Mom? They didn't. No, she couldn't, honey. Yeah, they didn't care about them at all. They didn't have any relationships with them. So yeah, okay. So when this kid, John Widener, came back to see her and was like, you know, she maybe promised to say goodbye. And she's like, oh, she's gone. She's gone to Los Angeles. And he's like, is that so? How funny. She asked me to come see her before she went. And she's like, oh, yeah, she went Wednesday. Just like, whatever. So... Over the course of the next six months, he's sending all these letters to Jenny and she's not responding. So he goes to Belle and he's like, I keep writing her letters, but she's not responding. And Belle goes, oh, that's all right. I heard you'd gotten married and I wrote to tell Jenny. And he's like, no, my brother got married. Can you please write to Jenny and tell her that I'm still single? Oh, (laughs) Isn't that so sweet? And she's like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Oh, my God. And then, you know, of course, he still never got any letters from Jenny for a kid. At least, like, forge a letter. He might have known her handwriting. That could be. Los Angeles is so great. I see the Golden Gate Bridge and the Hollywood sign and California stuff. Everyone is blonde here. The coconuts are delicious. (laughs) There's electric scooters everywhere. (laughs) You can get food delivered any time of day or night. (laughs) (laughs) So Emil Greening is sad. Jenny's gone. He quits. And Belle needs a new handyman around the farm. So she hires this guy. You just can't hire good help these days. (laughs) Yeah. Well, luckily for Emil, he just quit. He was local and he just quit. Because there was a difference between like who she brought in from out of town and who was local. If they were local, they continued to live. And if they were from out of town, they mysteriously vanished <laughs> and left their trunks upstairs. <laughs> she hires this guy, Ray Lamphere, and this is 
this is a tipping point because because he gets a whole chapter. He does get a whole chapter. Yeah. This is, but this is a tipping point because he falls in love with her. And that changes everything in the story because he can't let anything go now. Whatever drama happens with her, he wants to have his all his little tendrils in it because he just loves her. This is also where the author of this book says some really outrageously, like, it's misogynist, but it's so... Actually, you know what? Let me just look up the copyright date of this book because it's, like, so dated. Okay, this was written in 2018, and he's like, I don't understand why this skinny man who was 10 years younger than her was so interested in this, like, fat, giant, awful old woman and then basically goes on to be like, I'm sure he had mommy issues. <laughs> That's, like, basically what he says, but it's framed in this, like, psychologists have said that maybe blah, 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 and it's like... Dude, shut up. She was a MILF, all right? Is there a picture of this dude in the back of the book or a sleeve or something? I want to see I'll how put, this dude looks. I'll put a picture of him on the Instagram. I have a picture yeah. of him on my phone. It seems like he didn't like women. The author of this book. Yeah. Oh, you want to see a picture of the author of this book? Yeah. I was talking about Ray Lamphere. The author of this book, yeah, there's a picture of him in the back. He looks like a douche. It's a good book, but he looks like a douche. Here we go. He looks like a douche, <laughs> but he looks like somebody that would definitely talk that shit on a woman. But he's like he looks an like intellectual Gere, kind douche. Of. He kind of does. He's like an intellectual douche. So he frames this like he must have had mommy issues. It's like something psychologists have remarked upon. And psychologists I, say mommy issues. I don't want to like read them all because who needs that in their brain? But well, I guess we're talking about murder. Who needs that in their brain? Clearly we do. I really liked this description of Ray Lamphere though. This was the description of Ray Lamphere's dad. And I'm not sure where it comes from. It's just, it has a quote around it, but it doesn't say who said it. But it said, William Lamphere, quote, had drunk away his money, his respectable social position, and his happy home. And that's like, a lot of people do that. They drink away their respectable position and their money and their happy home. So anyway, Ray was like his dad. He was drunk. All right. He was apparently a good carpenter as long as he was sober which wasn't that often and he was a big gambler and if he wasn't sober you just call it art <laughs> take it to burning man take it to burning man most people thought he was a no account kind of man people didn't have a lot of respect for him but nobody disliked him either they just thought he was drunk he was like uh bill hickok in deadwood <laughs> okay gotcha. he liked to gamble and he was kind of a drunk and people were like oh that guy's no good but well, but they didn't think he was, like, the former best shooter. Back in the day, late 1800s, early 1900s, you could be a drunk back then, and it was okay. You were the town drunk? The, the town, yeah, yeah. The one town, of the town like, drunks? One of the town drunks, yeah. Okay, so let me just read to you about, Ray, so Ray becomes her lover. He's her handyman, her lover, and she lets him sleep in the in the house, in the room that Emil Greening had been in, and that a lot of these men who had come into town had been coming into. So here's the from the author. The notion of the slightly built young man throwing himself into a sexual affair with the coarse-featured 280-pound female, nearly 11 years his senior, has led at least one student of the case to indulge in some armchair psychoanalysis, speculating that it was Bell's very maturity that made her irresistible to Lamphere. To a lonely man with an urge to be mothered, to return to the security of the womb, such a woman may have represented the safety of fulfillment without any of its responsibilities. Shut the fuck up. 
you could literally say that about any man and any woman, regardless of their sizes or ages. Yeah. What does that even mean? Anyway, several of the men were for sure her lovers and probably more than were confirmed. One of them was Peter Coulson, and he, he survived. He's not a murder victim. He was, I think, a local who lived on the farm, and he worked there for two years. And he would later talk about how she would come into his room at night and make love to him with sweet words and caresses. And he said she purred like a cat. She was soft and gentle in her ways. I never saw such a woman. Oh, man. They all speak so fondly of their partners and lovers before they get killed or, or when they're killing people. She purred like a cat. Here's another thing that the author wrote into this book that is just, he just like won't stop with how he describes her appearance. <laughs> So he's She's a, like this 400-pound lady. Yeah. She looks like, like a toad. A toad, like four arms. He writes that Ray and Mrs. Gunnis were often seen together, looking much like Jack Spratt and his wife. They rode into town on her wagon. I even wrote into my notes, shut the fuck up, good Lord. with <laughs> Jack Spratt. <laughs> Things are going really well for Ray Lamphere. He's got a job. He's got a hot milf. He's living in the spare room. He doesn't have to be a husband to her. He just gets to be her lover and employee, and he gets to make money, and he still gets to kind of fuck off and do whatever he wants and be a drunk and go gamble. So he's loving life. And then this dude shows up. His name's Andrew Helgeline, and he's a, he's a Norwegian guy. This love story of Andrew Helgeline goes on for a really long time. So she's been doing all of this corresponding with people, And these dudes just, like, bring their life savings, show up, vanish, whatever. She has to play the long game with this guy. And so there's a ton of really cringy correspondence that goes on. None of his letters survived, but her letters to him did survive. So those are the ones that we get, which is a part of why it's so cringy, because you only see this one side, and it's her trying to lure him in. Because she didn't remember what trunk was his and got all mixed up between all the trunks. Well, this is before. She's never met him or anything. He responded to her ad. And then she, they're like pen pals. Got it. For a really long time. So sometime in 1906, she starts corresponding with him. He's a 49-year-old. He's from South Dakota. And he'd seen one of her advertisements. They started sending lovers or they And they started sending letters, and it was probably between 75 and 80 letters. Oh, shit. Okay. And they were all written in Norwegian, and all we have is, is hers, you know, of course. So, and again, this author is like, they were sloppy and, like, poorly written, and they had bad spelling and penmanship, and I'm like, she was poor. She grew up on a farm, and they had twig fires. Like, leave her alone about that kind of shit. Like, he's he's classist, and he's misogynist, and he's, like, ridiculous. But the research in the book is really good. Yeah. Like, I would still recommend reading it, but I have nothing really particularly nice to say otherwise about this author. In the letters, she starts off addressing him as Dear Sir and signing them as Miss P.S. Gunnis. So she's telling him all about the farm and all this stuff, and she's trying to, like, get him to feel a type of way about her. And she says, Dear friend, 
You impress me with being a good man with a strong and honest character, a real genuine Norwegian in every respect, and it is difficult to find such a man, and not every woman appreciates. There are plenty of these American dudes around here, but I would not even look at them no matter how often they asked me. (laughs) These dudes... So she tells him how great her land is, how he'll be able to make better use of all of his money, his capital in farming, where she is. And she's like, take all your money out of the bank and get here as soon as you can. And he's apparently he's like, not just yet, because she just keeps writing and says things like, I long so to know you better, but I will try to wait with patience until you get here. I have now thrown away all the other answers I got and keep all of yours in a secret place by themselves. You truly do not know how highly I prize them, as I have not found anything so genuinely Norwegian and real in all of the 20 years I've been in America. Being Norwegian is like a really good compliment, apparently, to other Norwegians. Yeah, I guess so. You are so Norwegian. You're more Norwegian than all of the other Nor- true Norwegians. Norwegian in many ways. Obviously, she didn't have Latinos on that farm because... They would have worked hard and probably not been killed. <laughs> would have been quick with that shit. You know? <laughs> she starts telling him, don't tell anyone about us. Come here, but don't tell anyone you're coming. Pull all of your money out of the bank and don't tell a single soul about our love affair. And she says, now my dearest friend, come soon. Oh, so- I mean, that does sound really sweet. So most true crime podcasts hawk self-defense stuff and they hawk home alarms and things like that. And it's done with this air of like, oh, the world is a really scary, dangerous place full of scary, bad people. You need to protect yourself by any means possible. But so buy a mattress. So buy a mattress. No, buy a home security yeah. system yeah. or pepper spray or cameras or whatever. But we're going to bring something a little cooler to you because sure, there are bad people in the world, but... Instead of being afraid, I think what I what I would want to feel myself and like what I would want people around me to feel is fucking badass, right? Like yeah. if you feel like a badass and you're a take no shit kind of person or you're not a take no shit kind of person, but you need to like fake it till you make it. Sometimes what really helps, at least for me, is having a super cool knife. Oh yeah, right there in your back pocket. And I've started, um, I'm not really collecting knives, but I'm low-key collecting cool knives. Yeah, you got a sweet collection going. So Um, you got me my first Blades for Babes knife. Do you remember that? Yeah, I totally do. The gold one that's in. The rose. Yeah, it's gold and the blade is gold and the handle is gold and then it's engraved with roses all over it. And I love that one because I feel really classy, but it's super sharp. And anytime I have to pull it out in public to use it to open something, I flip it open and then it's like. Whoosh. She looks so cool. But it's very also very tasteful. You also got me a garter throwing knife mm-hmm. that straps to my thigh. That is really super cool. It comes with two leather straps. You can strap it onto your thigh, camp in. Or you can strap it onto your calf, uh, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It doesn't have to just be your sexy garter. It can be your badass zombie hunting garter i guess yeah get ready for the apocalypse i'm ready with the knives that you got me i got two sick batarangs batarangs yeah they're so cool but they're really cool and they're hella sharp 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just used down on the farm. I had to cut up the twine that holds the bales of straw and hay. And I just grabbed whatever cool knife was lying around in the bedroom. And the one that I grabbed is this. It's a false butterfly blade. It only has it's So it's legal. Mm-hmm. It has a sharp one side one-sided blade it's a it's a single-sided blade but the handle is a whole bunch of it's gold and it's a whole bunch of skulls going down either side of the handles and so that was how i took care of my farm animals today and what i found is that having those knives around and like we got the throwing set at christmas the knife Mm -hmm. throwing set and you got your battering throwing knives i feel like the more i play with them the more i feel comfortable with them the like the tougher I feel and the less scared I feel of things and when you're talking about self-defense like I really think that's at least as important as anything else although learning how to use the (laughs) knives that you have yeah obviously super important or any other self-defense weapon because you don't want it to be turned around on yourself but yeah we so we got a cool code for just us just our listeners you listeners yeah and that code is aca body bag you can go to bladesforbabes.com and use that code and get 10 percent off any knives 10 percent off bladesforbabes.com promo code aca body bag check it out get yourself a knife be a badass straps to your leg they also have this really cool demon knife that I want so bad. It like fits over your, it hangs on the wall and then it fits over your whole hand and it's this giant demon face and all the teeth are knives. And it's like, if you punched someone, you would just poke like 30 holes in oh, them. It's like, like a demonized Wolverine. Yeah, it's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it's the kind of thing that if someone was looking in your window and thinking about breaking into your house and saw it mounted up on your wall, I think they would think again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, bladesforbabes.com. All your stabbing needs. Promo code ACA body bag. She's always calling him like my dearest friend, my one and only best friend. And she she never says like, I'm going to put it to you so good. But she says it in the language of the times, how much she cares, how she will make a comfortable home for him and do all of the things for him that he would appreciate and like you know what i mean yeah yeah this guy's like i'm gonna get laid if i go there yeah at some point he said he was gonna come and he'd made his arrangements and then he was sick and he decided to overwinter again in south dakota instead of travel through the winter and she says why must you stay so long up there where it is so bad i am now so afraid that you will become ill if you stay any longer if only you were here we would have it so much better both you and i you do not need to stay up there and work yourself to death dear friend but as you say live in peace and get a little good out of life hearing that where she says but as you say makes me think that like he had it really hard and he just wanted something nice and i wonder if he held out in their correspondence because that was the best thing that was happening and he was afraid to ruin it oh yeah yeah. anyways they correspond for a really long time and it's very sweet and she says so dear friend this is a secret between us and no one else and she tells him to take all of his money out have it changed into bills and to sew it into his underclothes so that he doesn't get robbed he still doesn't come for like a really long time But finally, in January of 1907, he says he's coming. So it's been about a year. I wonder if she gets the advice of sewing stuff from what other people did as they arrived. Oh, I'm sorry. 
he doesn't come in January. In January of 1907, his mom dies, and she's like, "You've you've got to come to me. Like you have no one left there. You've got to you've uh. got to let us be together." But she also says, "This is like." We will not grieve over the dead. They have received their rest, and we must hope they are with God in heaven, joyous and happy. Which is, like, kind of right on in some ways about death, but also not what people want to hear when they're grieving. Yeah. But she's like, I'm sure she's happy. Bring your money here now. I miss your money. You're sad, but wait, remember that thing we always kept on talking about? You know what would make you feel less sad is if you gave me your money. You know your money? That's my money. Even in the summer of 1907, he postpones his departure again. She remains ever patient. And finally, in January of 1908, he makes it to Laporte. And he shows up. So, and this one, this this one is sad because of that vibe of him want that you kind of get from her letter of him just maybe wanting something a little good in life. And then... You'll see in his behavior why it's so sad. And you just know what his fate might be. I mean, you said he stuck around for a little bit, but... So Ray Lamphere, living the life. No idea that Belle is having carrying on this romance, behind, essentially behind his back, yep. with this Norwegian farmer in South Dakota. And she doesn't say anything. She's not like, there's a man coming. Just one day, Andrew shows up, and she's like... Uh, yeah, Ray, I'm going to need that room for my new man. Kicks Ray out of his own room. I mean, it's in her house, but still, it's his room. Kicks Ray out of his room, puts Andrew up in his room, and tells Ray, go sleep in the barn. Oh, my God. (laughs) And Ray is like a jilted lover, because he's a jilted lover. So he's not happy at all. You think Ray heard him doing it? From the barn? I hope not, because then the kids would have heard it, too, in the house. Oh, I'm pretty sure the kids heard it. Any of it. Her purring like a kitten. (laughs) After Belle kicks Ray out, he comes back in for breakfast the next day because he's like trying to scope out this new dude. And so he's like, hey, what's up? Starts talking to him, strikes up a conversation. And Belle kicks him out. And is like, you don't talk to my man. Kicks him out. He said his his way of saying it was, she gave me the dickens. She told me to leave him alone. (laughs) That's something my family would say. She gave me the Dickens. I've never heard of it used that way. Do you, have you heard you're a Dickens? Because yeah, no. that's what my mom says. That's like you know, silly goose. Yeah. Like oh, you're a silly goose. There's also you're such a Dickens, and my mom says that. She always said that yeah, to me as a kid. I, I wouldn't know that. It's like the whitest <laughs> thing I think a person could ever say. I've heard of like scared the Dickens out of me. Right? Isn't isn't that what yeah i think so Are you scared me like the dickens i don't i don't know Is I, dickens I'm... just like a placeholder word that we inherited from england from charles dickens that they like you like anything that reminds english people of this author that they think is really great suspense or fright whatever characteristics about him yeah. they associate just becomes this new word dickens Ray is telling people, we got along all right before that, and she used to come into my room at night. But after he came, she had no use for me. Mm. Within a short amount of time after Andrew gets to Laporte, she takes him to the bank. Surprise. Because she takes him for the first time on January 6th, and he arrived in January, so she took him pretty quick. There's, I have a timeline for this. On January 3rd, he arrived. On January 6th, they go to the bank for the first time. Now, when they get to the bank... It turns out he didn't bring all of his money in cash like she told him to. And he brought these banknotes from his bank. And so to get the money, they've got to send them from their bank to the South Dakota bank. Yep. 
and he and so you know they're like she says like how long is that gonna take and they're like four or five days and she's pulls a full-on karen she's like what i'm a good customer you should be able to get the money faster apparently andrew was like all right four or five days whatever the bank is like there's nothing that we can do like the money is not here we're not gonna give we're not gonna front it to you so you're just gonna have to wait when she walked up to the teller like oh another fella you're gonna kill i yeah. mean work at your farm yeah so they left without the money then on the 11th the money arrived but they didn't go to the bank to pick it up until the 14th so they go to pick it up on the 14th guess what happens on the 14th he leaves town yeah, he leaves town. They go and they pick up the money. It's $2,839, which is about $75,000 today. The bank teller's like, why don't you let me write you a cashier's check? And Andrew's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And Bella's like, no, we're taking that in cash. So they took the money, half in gold coins, half in paper money. Wow. Yeah. And the bank guy is like, what are you going to do with all of this cash? And Belle just grabs Andrew and like pulls him by the arm and is like, mind your business, like tells off the bank teller. I wonder what Andrew's like, yeah, what are we going to do with all this cash? What did she tell him? Well, all we know about him is that he came on the 3rd, he went to the bank on the 6th, and they're like, oh, you can't get your money. And he's like, okay. So the 14th. And she's like freaking out. And he's like, well, I think it's fine. But okay, whatever you say, Belle. And she's like leading him by the arm in and out of these places. And, you know, he goes in to get the money. And they're like, well, don't you think you should have a cashier's check? And he's like, yeah, sure. And then Belle's like, no, we want the cash. And he's like, okay. And I just kind of get this vibe that he's like, I think she's going to kill me. Everything has been terrible. You know, I don't have any other reason to believe that than just what i'm saying but that's i don't know that's my oh, vibe check yeah. on andrew like it just seems really sad and he's this guy he wears like a giant floor length fur coat <laughs> like a mountain man so and his mama died not too long ago yeah i just feel really bad for him on the 14th on that same day bell sends ray off on an errand she tells him that she's got a horse trade with the cousin in another town can he go get the horse and if the cousin doesn't show up tonight you know, just stay overnight there. The cousin will be there tomorrow. The cousin never showed up at all. And there was no horse trade. But when Ray Lamphere gets back, Andrew's gone. And no one ever sees him again. Mm. And you'd think that Ray would just go back to being a little kept man. I wasn't saying that about his stature. I just meant... Yeah, yeah. I, I meant his, like, emotional stature. But sure, either. A little kept man. Got his room back. Yeah, got his room back and like whatever. <laughs> but he was a jilted lover. He was a jilted lover and he was already acting like one. And she was already acting like she didn't like that. So things were probably never going to repair between the two of them. But he was from town, right, Ray? He, he was from town. Which is, it's interesting. Because he's really her downfall. So it turns out that Andrew really did keep it a secret about coming to see Belle. He didn't tell anyone. So when his family comes looking for him because they have these letters from her, she's like, oh, yeah, he'll be back in a week. She tells them all of these stories. His brother is asking and she's like, oh, yeah, he should be back soon. You know, he wasn't planning to stay. He stopped and visited like a cousin or something on the way. 
And the, the brother asked, and she's like, yeah, he only stopped by for an hour. He was on his way somewhere. And so he, you know, he figures out about the letters, and he starts asking Belle, and she starts saying all of these, like, she'll just, like, tell him anything. Then these stories start coming out, and she just doesn't even try. <laughs> by February 3rd, Belle and Ray are reaching this boiling point. Meanwhile, she's got Andrew's brother is not hot on her tail, but he's coming for her. There's some type of lover's quarrel. Some newspaper accounts say she fired him. Some say that he quit because she owed him wages. But they, this was their big fight. This was the big fracture between them. And he left the farm, but he left his clothes and his tools behind. And less than a week later, she hired a replacement. And he moved into the second floor bedroom that all the, all the men had come through the revolving door of men that had come through meanwhile lamphere's like pissed he wants his clothes he wants his wages he hires a lawyer and starts threatening to file suit their feud is just getting started but you know how bell is you remember when the guy took her cows how she was like oh he took my cows fuck you i'll take your cows she starts sending letters to the sheriff complaining that she's being harassed by him and he's skulking around her farm, like he's stalking me, he's threatening me, he's crazy. And he actually gets arrested for trespassing at her farm and he's found guilty and he has to pay a fine. Also, I think this is really interesting. I wrote this in my notes. She does a Darvo. So she is like, she's mean to him. She spurns him and doesn't explain any of it, kicks him out, doesn't tell him why. Does, owes him wages, doesn't let him get his stuff. And then she does a Darvo. It's deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. And it's this like a emotionally abusive tactic. Mm-hmm. But it's so classic what she does. She She's like, I didn't do that. You did that. You suck. You're the worst. Yeah. I'm the victim. So she goes to the cops. Narcissistic tendencies as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Darvo's a narcissist in the narcissist toolbox. It's like uh, their primary yeah. weapon for sure. But it's not exclusive to narcissists. It's just a shitty way of arguing with people. Meanwhile, Andrew's brother is like, so who's this bell lady? Goes to the postmaster to see who she is. And he writes her a letter and she says she always thought he'd gone to Norway to find his other brother or something like that, right? She just says she hasn't heard from him and I don't know and... And then she says, I've waited every day to hear something of him. This lady. Uh She is going after Ray. She files an affidavit saying that he's insane. She wants to have him committed. She says, here's what she says about him. He told me things that I knew were not true and unreasonable. When she was asked if he'd shown any extraordinary propensities or feeling or conduct, she she replied with an emphatic, yes, he comes to my house every night at all times of the night and looks in the windows, commits misdemeanors. (laughs) she's like accusing him of like being a peeping tom and like jerking off in her window which i don't know he might do it doesn't sound like he's completely innocent in all of this feud but i'm not i'm not inclined to believe her she had him hooked yeah she definitely did she said that although he'd been found guilty and fined already that he's continuing to do it usually while he's drunk and when asked to to fill out a checklist of behavioral traits that best described him, she checked off silent, melancholy, restless, seclusive, dull, profane, filthy, intemperate, sleepless, and criminal. Jesus. (laughs) She's just like, all of them, all of them. Mm -hmm. 
All the bad things. He's all the bad things. That's like what can be easily said about her. So guess who his doctor was? Bo Bowell. Oh, okay. Bo Bowell's coming back to the story a little bit. He testified that he'd prescribed for Lamphere at different times during the past five years and said he has never treated him for any mental disturbance. And he said, I do not consider him insane. The three-member insanity commission appointed to examine him. That is so terrifying. Oh, man. They would find me insane. The examining commission? Mm Mm-hmm. They said, we find patient quiet, clean, and neat. And he's slightly nervous, which he should be. He just got on the wrong side of Bell fucking Gunnis. His memory is good for recent and remote events. Speech is intelligent and coherent. Ray Lamphere is not insane. So she has him arrested again for trespassing since that didn't work. And he's got to go. He's got to go up before a judge again on these trespassing charges. Meanwhile, Andrew's brother is still looking for him. And she replies to him. He says, could you send me the letter from the last time you talked so that I could see what you mean when you say my brother left? And she's like, well, I would if I could, but the letters have been stolen. <laughs> she says they were stolen by a man named Lamphere who worked for me for a while. <laughs> this Lamphere began to find so many wrong things to talk about until at last they arrested him and they had three doctors examine him and see if he was sane. They found him not crazy enough to put in a hospital, but perfectly sane he is not. He is now out under bonds and is going to have a trial next week. But one thing I am sure of is that in one way or another, he has taken the letter from Andrew he had sent me. Others have told me that Lamphere was jealous of Andrew and for that reason troubled me this way. Okay, first of all, Ray told you himself (laughs) that he was jealous of Andrew. But it's interesting how she's like... That's the only true part of all that. Yeah, it's also interesting how she's like, I can make all my lies come together into like, she's still, I think she's really delighting in this. Oh, yeah. She's talking shit about Ray to somebody who doesn't even know who she is and she likes it. And not only that, but she gets to kill this guy and then paint herself as this victim. And pining lovesick victim. And kind of pinning it on Ray. Mm hmm. I mean, she could kind of say something like, Ray killed him or something like that and who's to say that it's not true. She is setting that up. Yeah. 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 It's also such a teenage way of doing it. When you hear about the MySpace murder cases and these cases that involve social media, there's that same thing. Like they start to tell a lie in one place and to make it more real, they bring it to this other story. Anyway, it's very emotionally immature for a woman well into her 40s. Yeah, I'd say. So when Ray goes to his second trespassing trial, all of a sudden... They're cross-examining Belle, and they're bringing up all of her dead husbands and stuff. Okay, right on. Is this by Belle's suggestion? No, they're they're cross-examining Belle because they're prosecuting Ray for trespassing. So they've got to ask Belle. They've got to ask Belle like how he was trespassing. But then Ray's defense attorney starts being like, "So what about you, Mrs. Gunnis? Like, what's your deal?" It backfires. But he says. Peter Gunnis, your husband died very suddenly, didn't he? And the state's attorney is like, objection. He carried considerable life insurance, didn't he? Objection. You collected that life insurance, didn't you? And and then he te- then the the state attorney is like, you don't have to reply to that. And then the lawyer's like, Mrs. Gunnis, how did that sausage grinder and crock of hot brine come to drop on Mr. Gunnis's head anyway? Oh. So then the the prosecuting attorney is like totally freaked out. The the court record just says he protested in strong language against the practice of browbeating a witness <laughs> and insulting a defenseless woman, which I underlined in the book defenseless, so they just wrote LOL. 
I, I wonder if Ray knew what was up. Do you think he knew? He knew something. He knew something. He definitely he's knew not something. a kid. Yeah, I understand what something. we were saying about the kids. But, and he well, could, she he wasn't could, he bringing drop, drop in that. men, I think, while he lived there. But I still think he knew. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because there's these big old fucking bumps in the backyard. <laughs> the size of bodies. The size of bodies. The lawyer keeps questioning her. He starts asking her about Mads. She, he starts asking how he happened to die, whether he had any life insurance, whether she got the life insurance. Meanwhile, the prosecuting attorney is losing his entire shit. And then he asks her about Mads. He says, wasn't there some talk about taking up his body to see if he'd been poisoned? And this is when the prosecuting attorney says, I object to these questions. They have nothing to do with this case. I demand they be stopped. And then he turns to Belle and he says, Mrs. Gunnis, you would be justified in waylaying this man on his way home. Oh, <laughs> oh man. And then the judge concurred. He said, I think these questions have gone a little too far. Oh, judge, come on. So then the lawyer, he like calms down, gathered himself. And then Belle's about to leave the stand and he turns to her and he goes, oh, just a moment. When will your daughter, Jenny Olson, return, Mrs. Gunnis? And that's when her demeanor cracked, actually. Oh, shit. Yeah, she looked really shaken by that. But the judge said that there was nothing surprising about it. He said that any decent woman would respond that way, resenting those types of intrusions on her personal life and, like, those types of, like, accusatory questions. So it actually totally backfired. It made her look like a victim because here's this woman who's raising children on her own. Her husbands have died. Like, she's this defenseless woman. Yeah. And he's attacking her when she's just in court because this drunkard keeps trespassing on her property. You know what I mean? So she yeah. looks like she she really gets what she wants here because she getting, loves looking getting, like the victim in this Ray Lamb fear situation. She's getting some sympathy, and that judge is kind of giving her some sympathy, maybe feeling bad because this lawyer's trying to say that she killed her daughter and all these other guys. Mm-hmm. So Lamb Fierce found guilty, and he has to pay a fine, and he has to pay court costs. His new employer just pays it for him. Go new employer, I guess. Belle's still pissed at him and has him arrested again for trespassing. I don't even think he was there. I think she just had him arrested for trespassing. <laughs> He's at his house right now, but he trespassed. He's in jail. And she's still corresponding with Andrew's brother, trying to cover up this murder, and tells him... Yeah, he's not going to let that go. No. She tells him she can't remember the date that he left the port, but it was the 15th or 16th of January, and she says... My little daughter took him to the streetcar station. He went by way of Michigan City as he had a desire to see that little town. So she writes this whole letter with all of these weird little details that obviously have no basis in fact because she fucking killed him on the 14th. He wasn't there on the 15th. Her daughter didn't do anything. Then she says, she's kind of trying to call his bluff and is like, you know... I thought it was strange I didn't hear from him, but I don't see why he hasn't written to you. He says he's going to come, and she's like, oh, sure, if you come, I'll help you. I'll help you mm-hmm. search for him. So Ray Lamphere has to go back on trial for prowling, and she says she has her daughter Myrtle go on the stand and say that Ray pulled out one of her fence posts and cut the wire and, like, took it away, which, again, I wouldn't put it past Ray. 
to be honest. Maybe he did. He's like, fuck you, Belle. I'm taking your fence post. But it's kind of a bad move, especially when you know he knows that she's dangerous. Clearly, the questions that his lawyer asked Belle on the stand, he knows what's up. Oh, yeah. So this time, Ray was acquitted, and she had to pay the court costs. Okay. Which she probably really didn't like. Yeah, but she could afford it. I bet this really made her mad. She goes, later that day, she goes to the dry goods store and she just starts like chatting with the clerk and being like, Ray's harassing me. He keeps showing up. I'm afraid for my life. He's so dangerous. He won't leave me alone. Then she comes back to the store the next day and she's doing the whole same thing. But then the next day, she's like, I'm afraid he's going to set fire to my house and kill me and my kids. going to fake a fire, but make her way out. Remember I said that Belle was known for treating her children nicely. On April 27th, some people would say that Belle kept her children home from school that day, but the accounting from the teacher at the school was this. On the morning of April 27th, I noticed that the two little girls of Miss Gunnis came into the schoolroom crying. Their cheeks were swollen from weeping, and they seemed in great distress. I called Myrtle to me and asked if she was in trouble. She replied that she and her sister had been given a terrible beating by their mother that morning. It was the first time I had ever seen the children behaving so, and I was surprised. I pursued the questioning, and Myrtle told me that she and her sister had started in play toward the cellar of the Gunnis home. Mrs. Gunnis rushed after them before they reached the bottom of the stairway, and dragging them back had given them both a terrible beating. You keep out of there, she told the oldest girl. Don't you poke your faces where they're not wanted. I asked the children if they had been forbidden to go down into the cellar, and they said they had, but they had forgotten the injunction. Okay. I kind of think the murders were happening at this point in the cellar. She's got a system, and that's why she's keeping the kids out of there. Knocking them out and taking them to the cellar, maybe. Maybe, and then hacking him up. Later that day, Belle goes to her lawyer, and she tells him that she's living in fear of Ray Lamphere. And she says he's going to burn the house down. And she wants to write her last will and testament, which is on Ancestry.com. It's a public document. Oh, wow. And I was able to find it on Ancestry.com, the actual will. She doesn't... It's not in her handwriting. It's in the lawyer's handwriting, but... Does she give all of her money to her children? she, She tells him she wants to set everything up in case something happens. And she leaves all her property, both real and personal, to her three children, Myrtle Adolphine Sorensen, Lucy Bergliat Sorensen, and Philip Alexander Gunnis. Her three children. What about Jenny? Yeah. Providing that in the case of the death of any of said children without issue before her death, the survivor is to inherit the whole of the property. And provided also that in the case of the death of all three of said children without issue, the whole of the property should go to the Norwegian Children's Home of Chicago. Not Jenny. Wow. It's very weird. She just forgot about her. Like, all together and forgot that she killed her. Yeah, and it's unusual to go, I think something bad is... I I mean, I guess if she thought, like, all her kids would die in a fire that day, that she might leave her home to the Norwegian children's home. I, I mean... So after she does the will, she goes to the bank, she makes a deposit, she puts the will in a safe deposit box, and then she makes a deposit... And then she goes to a store and she buys candy and a cake and a toy train. And she just tells the clerk, like, oh, I'm going to give the kids a treat. And the clerk is like, is it a birthday party? Like, this is a lot. She's like, no, I'm just going to give them a little surprise. And I just wrote a little sad face next to that in the book. She's like, I'm just going to give them a little surprise. Like a last hurrah. 
a little surprise like a murder. That's what I was thinking when I saw a little surprise. Surprise! Mommy's going to kill you. Finally, she goes to the general store and she picks up a bunch of groceries and she needs to pick up two gallons of kerosene. And she said she didn't have her can, so she borrows the store owner's kerosene can. And she gets two, two gallons of kerosene. While she's in the store buying the kerosene, buying the groceries, Ray Lamphere walks in and they're just like ice cold. Don't even look at each other. It's like ABBA, like neither one of them will face the other one. (laughs) And she just, you know, walks by and kind of gives this like dirty look in his direction-ish and walks to her buggy and takes her groceries and her cake and her toy train and her two gallons of kerosene home to her kids. She makes this dinner. She's playing with her kids. That guy, Joe Maxson, who's living with them is like, yeah, she's he survives all of this. And he's like, she was playing with her kids. It was so nice. They were playing all kinds of games. They played Little Red Riding Hood. He starts getting sleepy. And so he says goodnight. And that's the last time he saw her. And he says, she was sitting on the floor with her daughters and son playing with the toy engine and passenger coaches. And it sounds like it was like just a sweet little scene. One of the notes that I had made was, did she like her kids for what they did for her? Yeah, give her like this image. Like she did, she she didn't maybe really love them as people, but loved the idea of them and what they did for her. Because it doesn't seem like she's actually really capable of empathy. But I do wonder, especially with, Jenny, it seemed like she did have some type of a relationship with Jenny. But then by the time she murders Jenny, she's murdered other people. And I wonder about how murdering someone changes who you are and how you're able to feel empathy, especially when you murder for material gain. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it just starts becoming just like this this norm feeling. You kind of numb yourself to a lot of that stuff after a while if you do it so much. Yeah. And that is where we're going to stop. So, folks. Looks like it's going to get hot again. <laughs> Wonder what she needed that kerosene for. She's not going to do anything. Ray Lamphere's about to burn her house down. Weren't you paying attention? They Believe- didn't even speak. Believe survivors. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get so canceled for that. <laughs> I'm getting canceled. Yeah, and we'll pick back up on our third and final installment for Bella. going to be a wild one, so stay tuned for that. Peace. Bye. Bye.